Traveling across Asia, you'll see remnants of the past, reminders in the architecture, entertainment, and customs of lands that have been home to some of the oldest empires on record. In this episode, we'll be focusing on one city in particular. It's an area steeped in cultures that overlap and intertwine, which are home to more languages than most people here in a lifetime. A place where brick by brick, the city has been built up, destroyed, and built anew. Caught in a 500-year cycle of poverty and prosperity. Visitors often note the close-knit efficiency under the, which the city operates, solemnly hardened over many battles, but also a sense of welcome they feel among the lively city streets with their bright colors, inviting scents, and cheerful commotion. Nestled within the sprawling boundaries of Delhi, India, is a bustling capital of New Delhi. As a meeting place of so many traditions and beliefs, a populace so intimately familiar with a cycle of birth and death, New Delhi is just as much home to the departing as it is the living. I'm Scott Parrish and you're listening to Dying to Eat. We focus on a different country and exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. If you love food, culture, and fun stories, I've got a great show in store for you, so make sure that you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. And a special shout out to that one listener that sent me a dictionary this week. Thank you. I wouldn't count on it helping. 6.59 p.m. The hot summer sun has just begun to sink below the horizon, and in the distance, a red tower stretches across the sky. Local businesses are preparing for a busy weekend ahead. The many spices that permeate the air in this sprawling landscape entice visitors to turn down crowded streets lined with a mixture of modern high-rises and intricate old buildings that are lone survivors from dynasties of the past. Suddenly, birds begin to take flight, and just a minute later, the earth begins to rumble and shake, causing people to flee for cover in fear and shock. On July 3, 2020, at 7 p.m., New Delhi, India, had just experienced the latest of a series of earthquakes that jolted the city for two months straight. Soon, however, the crowded city streets sprawled back to life, and people continued about their day, business as usual. Nestled within the international hub and tech center that is the national capital territory of Delhi, sits an even more populated district of New Delhi, the multicultural capital of India, whose people are no stranger to disruptions and disasters. Home to the largest commercial center in northern India, New Delhi is still a fairly new city, having been formally dedicated as the new capital of British India in February 13, 1931. Before India had New Delhi, there was an old capital of Kolkata, which was about 1,500 kilometers away. Over the course of the late 18th century, Kolkata had become the center of a multitude of national movements. The, leader of the, the leaders of these movements were calling for the release of India from British rule and for India to be granted sovereignty over itself. Worried about the possible collapse of British power in Kolkata, the Viceroy of British India, Lord Curzon, called for the first partition of Bengal. By redistricting the land to separate areas that were mainly populated by Muslim and Hindu people, Lord Curzon hoped to disrupt some of the dissent directed at the British crown. But the forced divisions only swayed public opinion even more towards the nationalists, and soon the city was embroiled in a massive political and religious upheaval that led to some political assassinations of 
many of the British officials living in Calcutta. Anti-colonial sentiments spread like wildfire, and soon the people of the capital began to begun a complete boycott of British goods. This was a hard blow for the British economy, which relied heavily on exports and trading in their colonies. In late 1911, nearly 8,000 kilometers, or about 5,000 miles away from the unrest that was gripping India, sat King George V, King of Britain. Probably staring at a map of India, he was tasked with a choice of deciding the location of the new capital. Finally, in December of that year, both the king and queen of Britain settled on a city that had been the seat of some of the most powerful emperors through Indian history as their new headquarters. That was Delhi. The history of the city is old as the epic of Mahavanrata. How's that? Wrap your lips around that one. One of the oldest legends in the world. From the Mughals to the Tulaks, from Hindu kings to Muslim sultans. The earth that held the city walls had been soaked in blood over the course of the last five centuries. When the British colonized India, time seemed to come to a halt in Delhi. No longer were there lavish festivals and royal courts. Not until it once had began, not until it once again became the center of the government. The city that had history of bucking the occupants of his throne would once again live up to his rowdy reputation. But we're ahead of ourselves, so hold on for a second. After deciding the location, the monarchs traveled to Kingsway Camp on December 15, 1911 to lay the foundation stone for the new capital, now known as New Delhi. Architects called upon the crown to plan the layout and the architecture of the city. But before the construction of the new capital would begin, Europe became entangled in the Great War. You and I know that as World War I. After the war ended, the city could finally be built, and it was finished by February of 1931. For 16 years, New Delhi was the official seat of power for the British India. But 1947 marked another repeat of the cycle in which the city deposed those who occupied her seat, and India became a free nation once again. After India gained independence in 1947, many changes took place in the city of Delhi and the capital of New Delhi. First, New Delhi gained limited autonomy. That's similar to how Washington, it's kind of like how Washington, D.C. is autonomous of the U.S., even though the land is situated in parts of Maryland and Virginia. Later in 1966, Delhi was changing from city to uh, Union territory, and it was broken into eight smaller cities that you can see on a map of Delhi today, with New Delhi being one of them. Many Indian historians called these the seven cities of Delhi, excluding the formerly British-controlled New Delhi from the list. As each dynasty rose to prominence, they would inevitably desire to create their own headquarters and leave their own mark on the land. Each one was more prestigious than the last. Because of the distinctive architectural features that would remain with each successive reign, the layout of the city itself would change and shift over the centuries. In the modern day, the cityscape is filled with tombs, palaces, fortresses, victory towers, and tech-filled high-rises. This mix of old and new is one of the things that makes New Delhi such a unique place to visit. 
This mixing pot of architecture has even become clearer in New Delhi since the population of the city jumped after the nation gained its independence. Even as 329,000 people left for the neighboring Pakistan, another 495,000 from the surrounding West Punjab, Sindh, and Northwest Frontier poured in. With them came their cultures, their languages, and their various beliefs. But even as the city officials struggled to accommodate this large influx of people, the city itself shifted and tried its best to welcome with open arms. But unlike the surrounding cities, New Delhi was only a few years old and didn't have enough empty buildings for so many people. This forced the refugees to either find shelter in temples, schools, camps, some even in military barracks. Some built wooden shacks along the parks. Eventually, city officials erected 36 permanent rehabilitation districts, which were named after historical figures that represented freedom. Many of these areas still remain and have evolved to reflect the different ethnic groups that now call them home. As one of the most heavily populated cities in the world, with about 26 million people, New Delhi is often cited as one of the most multicultural cities in Asia. The ever-changing culture is embraced by a city that has led to residents calling themselves Diwalas, a term that comes from a phrase that means the place where people with big hearts live. I really kind of like that. The diversity that permeates every corner of New Delhi makes it easy to find your own group of people to surround yourself with. From an array of different faiths such as Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Sikhism, and Christianity to different ethnicities like Pakistani and Punjab to a whole host of public recreational activities like gaming cafes, sports leagues, and community gardens. The city is full of variety and there's always something new and interesting to see and experience. While the common language of the people of New Delhi is Hindi, the formal language used for business and government institutes is English. So most people speak at least two languages and it's not uncommon to meet people that speak three or four very fluently. But with so many people coalescing in one area, there's also a multitude of Creole languages that have been adopted from many different regions in India. Just like the Louisiana Creole or the Spanglish in the American South. Here's a side note. We have an episode on Louisiana if you're interested in voodoo. So check it out. So, even with the first large migration into the capital, more people have continued to trickle into the city from all areas of the country to search for education and careers or, you know, just a change in pace. This has also had an effect on various languages spoken, so many people don't speak in one set language. Instead, you hear this, this mixture of languages, especially one called Hinglish, that's Hindi and English, or Punglish which is Punjabi and English. As one of India's most popular cities, it's a city that never sleeps. It's also the kind of city that really knows how to party. Take New Delhi weddings, for example. Most of them last anywhere from five to 10 days and might take as many as a thousand guests. Sometimes a groom may even show up in a helicopter on the day of the wedding. With more than 60,000 weddings happening on any given day, the celebrations just never seem to end. That reminds me of my favorite line from Wedding Crashers. 
you shut your mouth when you're talking to me. Aside from the standard weddings, baby showers, and graduation parties, there's definitely no shortage of cultural festivals and religious holidays to fill the city with various bright colors, sounds, and scents. As times when the New Delhi community is especially close, attending a festival is a great way to get the full scope of what this city has to offer. In November, New Delhi celebrates Diwali, one of the most popular festivals. Diwali is a celebration of the spiritual victory of light over darkness or good over evil and um, knowledge over ignorance. It's a pretty big scale event. To get ready for the festival, people will clean, renovate, and decorate their houses and they'll fill their homes and their workplaces with these clay oil lamps and patterns from this quartz power powder that's colored is colored sand rice and flower petals but the real color and light comes when the festival starts itself during the celebration people will wear their best clothes light their dilias to offer worship to lakshmi the goddess of prosperity and wealth and they have these family feasts where sweets and gifts are shared for five days the next big celebration in new delhi is christmas in a lot of ways, is celebrated the same there as in Wrestleworld, but with its this multicultural flair. Like a lot of Indian festivals, Christmas spans multiple days, with celebrations normally beginning on December 25th and then they end around January 5th. Just like in the West, people cover their houses in strings of lights, evergreen wreaths, and plenty of red and green ornaments. And it's generally a time to hang out with your family, exchange gifts, and eat lots of good homemade food. In the spring, a lot of people celebrate Buddha's birthday, the most sacred day in the Buddhist calendar. On a day of the festival, people dress in white clothes and give out rice pudding, rumored to have been one of Buddha's favorites. In recent years, young people have also celebrating by distributing food to the poor throughout the city. Philly, listen up. You may have to move over as the city of brotherly love. No matter what time of the year it is or where religion or ethnic group is celebrating and where it originated, the words of the Indian Parliament member Sashi Thoreau really summed up the feeling of the city when he says, In America, if America, excuse me, if America is a melting pot, India is a saucer a selection of sumptuous dishes in different bowls. Each tastes different and doesn't mix well with the next, but they belong together on the same plate, and they complement each other into making a meal a satisfying repast. That's really something to chew on. Because New Delhi contains so many cultures and religions, there are also a multitude of different funerary traditions and perspectives on death in general. Like weddings and festivals, funerals are a huge part of New Delhi and are typically treated with a lot of cultural fanfare. Since there are too many to really get into, I'm going to give you a quick rundown on how death is handled in the big four groups in that area. That's Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and Sikhs. Buddhism is really popular in India, and there are actually three different types of Buddhists practicing there. Being in northern India, most practitioners in New Delhi follow the traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, which is the kind that most people in the West think when we think about Buddhism in general. After all, there are plenty of viral videos and popular documentaries depicting the famous Tibetan monks in their bright orange robes, practicing perfectly choreographed martial arts displays in a picturesque mountain temple. In reality, 
Not every Buddhist opts for a monastic life, and most followers are actually just regular people. When a follower of Tibetan Buddhism is dying, special texts are read to them, similarly to a Catholic priest reading last rites. One popularly cited passage from the Tibetan Book of Dead is, Hey, noble one, now you have arrived at what is called death. You are going from this world into the beyond. You are not alone. It happens to everyone. It happens to everyone. That's certainly solid advice. And that's pretty good. After the rites are read and the dying become the dead, the funeral rituals begin and usually continue for 49 days. One of the reasons it lasts so long is because death and dying are considered to be one of the most important elements in the life uh, in Tibetan Buddhism. The 49 days following someone's death is seen as a critical period of final judgment when their karma is tallied up to determine whether they're reincarnated uh, as maybe a bug or a cow or a bird or another human. And that reminds me of my dad joke for today. A A wife once asked her husband, what exactly is reincarnation? He responded, it's when you die and you come back as something else. She thought for a moment, and then she said, Well, I guess you won't be coming back as an ass. Anyway, I make myself laugh. In most cases, the family sets up a framed photo of the deceased. Sometimes it's accompanied by a jar of ashes from the cremation, and they pray to for the dead every day for 49 days. For some, this is carried out as a solemn duty, while others treat it as wishing their dead ones good luck in their next life, and, you know, they're sending them good vibes while they can. On the 50th day, you get your assignment for your next life. One of the largest differences between Buddhist funerals in Tibet and those in New Delhi is the practice of cremation. Firewood is scarce in Tibet, so instead of cremating practitioners that would have their bodies Uh, The bodies are fed to vultures and other wild animals because it's a continuation of the cycle of life. This practice is seen as an offering to the animals, and it can pretty much be your last last act of karma, I guess. It's kind of like the opportunity for you to go out on on a solid note. New Delhi, on the other hand, has plenty of crematoriums, and it's much, much more crowded than Tibet. So cremation is often a much better option. So whether you're eaten by wild animals or literally returned to dust through cremation, the important thing is, to Buddhist, your body is reincorporated back into nature. Another large part of the population of New Delhi are practitioners of Hinduism. They also focus on karma and reincarnation when it comes to how they handle death. There's a common Hindu phrase that every grain sown in this existence is reaped in the next. It's like how we say you reap what you sow, except you have infinite lifetimes to screw up and the consequences literally follow you forever. Personally, I think having an infinite number of lives sounds pretty exhausting. But Hindus believe that if you get tired of being reincarnated and you want to retire permanently, you can escape this cycle by spending a lifetime of doing good deeds and basically achieving sainthood. Saint Scott. I kind of like that. When a Hindu person is dying, they're moved from their bed to a mattress on the floor and their heads are shaved. The ground is sanctified with water from the Ganges River and sometimes other holy symbols like cow dung or barley or sesame seeds 
Thank you anyway, but I don't want to be uh, purified with any kind of dung. Thank you. As the dying finally takes their last breath, family members move them off the mattress and directly on the ground. Contact with the ground is an essential part of the ritual because it symbolizes direct contact with the earth, and for the superstitious, it's believed that it eliminates the risk of your body getting lost and eventually becoming a bitter evil spirit. Once the body is properly situated, water from the meeting of the Ganges and Uinma rivers is poured into the mouth and a leaf from the Tulsi plant is placed inside. The forehead is then smeared with white clay. If a woman dies before her husband, her face and forehead are smeared with red as a sign of good fortune. The body is then wrapped in a clean cloth which varies in color depending on that person's age. Mourners who attend the wake that's held before the cremation usually wear comfortable clothes that are white or light colored, but never black because black's just too morbid. Traditionally, the family members would then light a huge bonfire and circle the body while it burned, but nowadays most people just go to the crematorium. Similar to most Buddhist, Hindu bodies are burned as a gesture of purification in order to release the soul from the body and allow it to re-enter the, the cycle of reincarnation. If a child under two dies though, they aren't cre cremated. They are instead buried since children are already pure and can be returned directly to the earth. That's pretty cool. It's always tragic when a child dies, but one thing about religions that involve karma and reincarnation is there's always this kind of unspoken idea that when a child has been a really bad person in the last life, then that's why they die so young. So that's a bit of, uh, I guess, unfortunate implication. But these deaths are still treated with love and respect in hopes that they'll be better off in their next life. Next up are the Islamic funerals, which follow pretty specific traditions, although the details do vary from region to region. One universal element of Islamic funerals is that the body is never cremated, but instead buried as absolutely quickly as possible. Before the burial, however, the body is washed by close family members of the same sex, and the body is wrapped in a plain cloth to respect the dignity of the deceased. The number of cloths used varies by gender, with men typically being wrapped in three layers and women being wrapped in five. This all takes place within hours of the deceased passing, and the body is kept in this state for several more hours for the wake, as people come and mourn and pass their respects and their condolences on to the family. After family and close friends have had a chance to mourn, the wake is open to members of the community who gather and offer their collective prayers for the dead. Following the prayers, the body is immediately moved to the gravesite. According to tradition, Muslim graves are always dug perpendicular to the holy city of Mecca so that when the body is placed in the grave on its right side is facing Mecca. Traditions are also very clear on the height of the grave markers indicating that they should be 12 inches from the ground. This really took some thought I, I believe because they don't want someone to accidentally walk over it and they also don't want it to be so tall that someone can lean on it or sit on it. As the body's lowered into the grave three Fist-sized spheres are placed near the body, one under the head, one under the chin, and one under the shoulder by the next of kin. After the burial, the family mourns for three days. 
During this period, the mourners wear plain clothing and avoid anything that might be considered frivolous out of respect for that dead person. Finally, the Sikh funerals. Like Hindus and Buddhists, Sikhs believe in reincarnation and karma and see death as simply another part of the cycle. Because of this, Sikh funerals aren't treated as ceremonies of loss and grief, but instead as celebrations of the soul meeting back up with God before their next life begins. Soon after the person dies, the body is bathed and dressed in their best clean clothing. After all, when you're meeting God, don't you want to look your best? If the deceased was a devout Sikh who's been through the initiation ceremony that functions much the same way that baptism does in Christianity, the religious tokens they carry remain with their body. If the person wasn't, then the family can leave their own tokens for the deceased. Afterwards, the body is surrounded by fresh flowers, and most Sikh funerals include recitals of prayers before and after the body is cremated, although a majority of Sikhs are buried instead for various reasons. Because these funerals have been seen as happy events, it's rare to see attendees displaying their grief publicly. Of course, each of these different approaches to death comes with a host of culinary traditions for the living. For example, guests at Hindi wakes bring flowers instead of food as eating is considered too much of a distraction, especially since Hindu funerals usually take place within 24 hours of the death. Ten days after the wake, though, they hold another gathering and visitors bring gifts of fruit for the grieving family, and nowadays it often takes the form of a tasteful chosen gift basket. There's no specific religious symbolism to the fruit itself as far as I can tell, but the fruit is normally relatively expensive and healthy and it's easy to snack on, so it's really just a nice gesture for the grieving family. This varies a lot depending on the place and the individual family traditions, but Hindus usually avoid meat for a period of time after someone dies, so the fruit is practical as far as diet goes. Buddhists typically have a similar approach within flowers are much more popular at funerals than food, but visitors sometimes also bring fruit. Likewise, Sikhs don't have any particular morning rituals or feast following the funeral, but individual families might have a get-together or their own special traditions. On the complete opposite of the spectrum are Islamic funerals, which in New Delhi at least generally involve an entire day up to a week of feasting and socializing. Although the rest of the funeral is usually pretty structured and focused on the deceased, this post-funeral gathering is much more relaxed and focuses on easing the suffering of the grieving family. It's a time to socialize and reminisce. It's a good way to make sure everyone is at least well-fed and they have good company. I have a few Islamic friends and I can say this for sure. They are extremely hospitable and extremely family-oriented. So the immediate family pretty much never cooks during this time and it's usually considered bad form for the guests to make food at their house. Instead, it's more of a potluck situation where friends and extended family make this hearty home-cooked meal and then they bring it over and everyone eats in a, it's like a buffet style where they can sit around and, and reminisce. As far as actual food served, lamb stews and curries over rice are pretty standard fare. Mansaf, which is completely new to me, I, I, I'm sure I've tried it at some point and I just don't speak enough of the language to know which one it was. It's a common example also. It's uh, 
baked lamb over rice, bread, nuts, and is covered with this sweet yogurt sauce. Another good example is Kidru, which is the slow-cooked chicken and rice dish packed full of delicious, comforting spices. On the sweeter side of things, Muslim funerals often feature desserts like baklava, pastries with honey, nuts, and fruits. The main thing is to pick a a crowd-pleasing dish that you can make in big batches and transport and serve and store without a whole lot of trouble. After all that talk about food, I'm glad it's finally time for this week's recipe. Tunde kebabs. And I am dying to eat. These kebabs are mouth-watering, soft, packed full of flavor, and according to legend, they were invented at the request of an aging king that had lost his teeth, but he hadn't lost his love for, for a good dinner. His royal chef set out to work, and this dish is what resulted, and it became an instant classic in the region. Okay, let's get cooking. We'll need two pounds of ground buffalo, chicken, or mutton, three tablespoons of coconut oil, a 14-ounce can of chickpeas, half of a medium-sized papaya, a half cup of yellow onion, a half cup of cashews, four cloves of garlic, a tablespoon of cardamom, two teaspoons of cloves and yellow chili powder, a teaspoon each of cinnamon, cumin, nutmeg, and rose water, half a teaspoon each of coriander and black pepper, and a quarter teaspoon of saffron, and then salt to taste. Start by popping the chickpeas, papaya, onion, cashews, and garlic into your food processor. Give it a good mix and scoop the resulting paste into a large mixing bowl. Add everything else except for the coconut oil and mix it well. I use my hands, well, because I like to use my hands. And I find it's easier to make sure everything is fully incorporated that way. Pinch the dough into balls a little bit larger than golf balls. Press them down into patties and arrange them on a cookie sheet. The dough will give you around 20 patties. Place the cookie sheet in your refrigerator for about an hour. When that's done, place a skillet over medium heat and melt half of the coconut oil. Cook the patties in batches, making sure that you're not overcrowding the pan. Let each batch cook until they're done, and I'd say that's about four minutes per side. Be careful when you flip the patties over because they will be crumbling. All that's left now is to serve it up hot and eat it with some good, raw, sweet onion. Now let me tell you, this was a real challenge for me to attempt to recreate. The first challenge was to make the kinda water. It brought back memories of my grandmother Butler's kitchen. It always seemed like a workroom, of, like an alchemist, I guess. It was filled with interesting colors and smells and tastes that came along with canning jars, open pots, and herbs that were draped over window ledges. You see, kinda water is simply rose water, and it's something my grandmother always kept in her cupboard. On reflection, rose water was exactly what I expected to see in her culinary conjuring. Now, don't get me wrong, my grandmother was never a chef of prestige or fame. She was just a simple country woman that added love and a little bit of magic to everything that she created. So rose water. I simply bought six roses. I popped off the tops, gently washed them under some cool running water. I filled a quart-sized mason jar with the clean petals and I filled it with distilled water. It sat on my counter for about two weeks to allow time for the uh, water to pull that soft flavor from the flowers. The second decision for me was determining the protein. 
while chicken is a viable option, I wanted something that really gave me what I thought it would be like with the flavor from the region. Making this choice was a little bit more challenging with the other two options because they're not very common in the U.S. I was pleased to find that my specialty butcher, Wild Fork Foods for y'all Southern Floridians, took care of my needs. By the way, I use bison to substitute for buffalo. As always, I want to be clear that I'm not recreating this recipe to be exactly the way your grandmother made it or to be an exact replica of the dish you ate when you were hitchhiking through India. This recipe is based on being relatively easy to recreate in your kitchen with a little flair of my own and a glimpse into what that original dish was probably like. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank Jeff for listening to Dying to Eat on Apple Podcasts. He said he loves this show and it's a lot of fun. Brother, I can tell you that we're having a good time. This show is made possible by listeners like you, and I really, really do appreciate your support. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, look out for new episodes every week on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook as Dying to Eat Podcast. Make sure to drop us a like and follow the show to stay up to date on your latest episodes. Until next time, stay lively.